Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Several studies have reported alarmingly high rates of depression in youth who have experienced various types of traumatic physical injury. These rates are of particular concern because serious physical injury has been identified as the leading cause of death and disability in children and youth aged 1 to 19 years old. Among physical injuries, fracture is the most common in this age group. Yet, no studies have looked specifically at post-fracture depression in youth. Considering the serious and well-documented adverse short- and long-term consequences of depression that is diagnosed in childhood or adolescence, Keppel and colleagues sought to determine if physical injury, specifically traumatic fracture, is associated with an increased risk of depression in this population. A clinical database was used to identify 1,121 adolescents who were admitted for treatment of traumatic fracture injuries at a university hospital over a 10-year period. The number of these patients who received a new diagnosis of depression following their hospitalization was determined retrospectively. By the end of the first year post-fracture, 4.1% of adolescents who had been seen in follow-up at the same university hospital at least once had received a new diagnosis of depression. When patients with a vertebral fracture associated with a spinal cord injury or skull or facial fractures were excluded, the percentage who received a new depression diagnosis was reduced. Interestingly, most of these new depression diagnoses were made within the first two months post-fracture. Compared to earlier prospective studies that used self-report screening tools to assess physically injured patients in the hospital and over the first few days or weeks following their injury, the rate of depression found in this study was much lower and closer to the rates of depression reported for the general population of adolescents. Although the lower rate might reflect the retrospective method and certain aspects of the study population, the authors suggest that it also supports growing concerns regarding the underdiagnosis of depression in youth. Sleep disturbances are a common occurrence in major depression and, in fact, constitute some of the core symptoms of the disorder. In some cases, patients may require sedative hypnotic medications to manage such symptoms until resolution of depression. This study by Kim and colleagues sought to assess whether depressed patients starting antidepressants who required prescription sleep medications had different outcomes from those who did not require sleep medications. The study, which was funded by Novartis, involved a retrospective analysis of commercial insurance claims. Patients with a diagnosis of depression who were initiating antidepressant therapy after at least one year of taking no medication were divided into two groups those who received concomitant insomnia medication, and those who did not. 
Health care utilization and costs and short-term disability costs were measured during the year following the initial antidepressant prescription. Nearly 12% of patients in the analysis received insomnia medications in addition to antidepressant medication. After controlling for baseline characteristics, the patients with insomnia were over 50% more likely to have depression-related hospitalization in the first 12 months and accrued nearly 4,000 more in costs in the first year than patients without insomnia. Patients with insomnia also missed more days due to short-term disability. The effects were seen in a post-hoc analysis analyzing claims for a full two years after initial antidepressant prescription. In depressed patients who require sedative hypnotics in addition to their antidepressant therapy, these results suggest that depression may be more complex and refractory than that seen in patients who require no insomnia medications. Clinicians who identify such symptoms may consider more aggressive treatment that may include referral to a specialist or subspecialist. One of the most common treatment approaches for clinical depression is antidepressant monotherapy. While clinical trials are necessary for rigorous testing of the efficacy of any treatment, such trials may not adequately represent real-world clinical settings. In this study, Lee and colleagues examined the efficacy of using antidepressant monotherapy in a naturalistic outpatient setting. The authors studied the medical records of approximately 1,700 patients who had been treated at the Duke University Medical Center for Clinical Depression from 2000 to 2010. The Clinical Global Impressions Improvement and Severity of Illness Scales were the two outcome measures used. 39% of participants reported substantial improvement by the end of follow-up. 55% reported either minimal improvement or no change, while 7% reported worsening illness. Participants who underwent longer treatment showed greater improvement and greater reduction in severity of depression. Participants who had more severe depression showed a substantial reduction in severity by the end of follow-up. However, they reported less improvement than those who were only mildly or moderately depressed at the start of treatment. Most depressive symptom improvement occurred within the first four to six weeks of antidepressant monotherapy, and greater initial severity of depression, comorbid substance abuse, and comorbid anxiety disorders were associated with worse outcomes. This study was funded by a block grant from Duke National University of Singapore Graduate Medical School for the Agency of Science, Technology, and Research of Singapore and the Singapore Ministry of Health. Atypical antipsychotics have been on the market for two decades, yet there is still much to learn in regard to how they cause weight gain. Aripiprazole is a partial agonist at several receptor sites, one of which is serotonin 2C, which has been associated with increased food intake. 
In this study, Rosen and colleagues theorized that aripiprazole may have varying effects on weight depending on whether aripiprazole exhibits more of an antagonist or agonist effect at the serotonin 2C receptor. They hypothesized that in the presence of antidepressants with high serotonergic activity, for example, when used along with SSRIs or venlafaxine, aripiprazole may act as an antagonist of the serotonin 2C receptor and increase the potential for weight gain. Conversely, in environments with low serotonergic activity, for example, when used concurrently with bupropion or when used alone, aripiprazole may act as an agonist of the serotonin 2C receptor and have less effect on weight. In this retrospective chart review, patients were separated into three groups, aripiprazole monotherapy, aripiprazole with an SSRI or venlafaxine, or aripiprazole with bupropion. The authors found that only those patients taking aripiprazole with an SSRI or venlafaxine showed statistically significant increases in weight and body mass index. The authors conclude that aripiprazole may work more as an antagonist at the serotonin 2C receptor subtype when in the presence of a high serotonergic environment, thereby increasing the potential for weight gain. According to the literature, the relationship between various types of trauma in childhood and aggression in adulthood is variable. Some researchers report positive associations, while others report negative associations. In this study, Sansone and colleagues examined five types of childhood trauma and their relationships to 21 aggressive behaviors in adulthood. The five types of childhood trauma were witnessing violence, physical neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. Participants were 342 internal medicine outpatients, all aged 18 years or older. About two-thirds of the participants were women, and 85% were white. All but 7.6% had graduated from high school. Each participant completed a survey booklet that asked about the five forms of childhood trauma as well as a checklist of 21 aggressive behaviors that was developed by the authors. Examples of items on the aggressive behavior questionnaire include intentionally breaking things, hit your partner when angry, and hitting a child out of anger, not because of discipline. In univariate analyses, each form of childhood trauma statistically correlated with the number of aggressive behaviors reported by participants at the P.001 level. Because childhood trauma variables may be highly interrelated, the authors also performed multivariate analyses. In the multivariate analyses, only witnessing violence and emotional abuse were statistically significant. The findings in this study shed further light on the murky relationships between various forms of childhood trauma and aggressive behavior in adulthood. 
The authors conclude that, according to their findings, witnessing violence and emotional abuse are significant forms of childhood maltreatment with regard to aggression in adulthood. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder often continues into adulthood and is present in about 4% of adults. ADHD is associated with a wide array of related disorders, including personality disorders, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, learning disabilities, and anxiety disorders. Problems in these other dimensions often precipitate the need for treatment. This study of adults with ADHD was designed to explore the relationship between personality disorder and response to stimulant treatment using transdermal methylphenidate. Adults were recruited with no attempt to include or exclude patients with personality disorders. Subject were categorized as having zero, one, and two or more personality disorders. Data were gathered from 67 subjects. 36% did not have a personality disorder. 37% had one personality disorder, and 27% had two or more diagnoses. Personality disorders were associated with greater emotional dysregulation and symptoms of oppositional defiant disorder. Cluster C personality disorders, typically thought of as the anxious or fearful personality disorders, were the most common. 71% of the subjects with zero or just one disorder responded to ADHD treatment, while only 38% of those with two or more personality disorders responded. Subjects with higher personality burdens also had less robust treatment effects. These data replicated a previous observation from this research group that subjects with two or more personality disorders were less likely to respond to methylphenidate treatment. The authors conclude that identification of personality disorder helps to define more complex and impaired patients. Further research is needed to understand the mechanisms by which access to disorders impede improvement in adults with ADHD. The original study on which this analysis was based was funded by Shire. The analysis reported here received no funding. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of a 61-year-old woman with short-term memory deficits, word-finding difficulty, increasing repetition during conversations, and excessive worrying. Does the patient have dementia, mild cognitive impairment, or an underlying psychiatric disorder? Is she cognitively normal? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. 
In this issue's psychotherapy casebook, we highlight the case of a 70-year-old man who retired at age 60 years after a busy and productive work life. Since his retirement, health problems including cancer, heart problems, and strokes have dominated his life. Now he spends his time intoxicated with alcohol and seeing doctors for treatment. Read how cognitive behavioral therapy helped this patient progress towards making a good adjustment to this new phase of life and gain the tools necessary to fashion a retirement worthy of his earlier successes. Recognizing multiple sclerosis early in its illness course is critical. Treatment must be initiated to reduce patients' disability, improve their functionality, and delay the damaging and irreversible effects of the disease as much as possible. In this commentary, Dr. Wabant gives a basic overview of accurately diagnosing multiple sclerosis by recognizing the symptoms, understanding the clinical subtypes, using diagnostic criteria, conducting a thorough examination, and administering assessment tests. She also discusses the importance of early diagnosis and reviews established and promising treatments for this degenerative disorder. This CME activity was independently developed by the University of North Texas Health Science Center and the CME Institute of Physicians Postgraduate Press, also an accredited provider, pursuant to an educational grant from Pfizer. In this issue, we highlight the case of a 41-year-old man with Parkinson's disease who experienced compulsive behavior, including gambling, hypersexuality, and consumption of large amounts of food and alcohol after his dose of ropinirole was increased. This case highlights the importance of awareness regarding drug-related psychiatric symptoms that may originate in the course of the management of Parkinson's disease. Read this interesting case report along with a variety of letters featured in this issue. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including the opportunity for continuing medical education credit and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.